0: Welcome to The Real Python Podcast. This is episode 155. How can you ensure that your projects required dependencies are appropriately declared? How do you determine what dependencies are missing from a third-party project you can't run? This week on the show, Christopher Trudeau is here, bringing another batch of PyCoders Weekly articles and projects. We discuss a new Python dependency checker called Faulty Depths. The tool helps you determine If you declared too few or too many packages for your project, Christopher's brought several developer resource collections, a list of assured open source Python packages from Google, test databases with interesting datasets, and multiple Django third-party packages. We cover several other articles and projects from the Python community, including a news update, advice on how to pitch yourself as a guest to the podcast, how to submit articles and projects to PyCoders Weekly, PyPI's introduction of trusted publishers and organizations, a tool for tracking package history, a pixel art paint program written in Python, and a project for efficient string matching with regular expressions. All right, let's get started. The RealPython Podcast is a weekly conversation about using Python in the real world. My name is Christopher Bailey, your host. Each week, we feature interviews with experts in the community and discussions about the topics, articles, and courses found at realpython.com. After the podcast, join us and learn real-world Python skills with a community of experts at realpython.com. Hey, Christopher, welcome back.
1: No, I should be saying welcome back to you. You were off at a conference.
0: Yes, this is true. <laughs> I spent a, a week away um, in Salt Lake City. So that was uh, it was fun. We'll talk a little bit more about it. And then some other things that kind of came up that I thought about a lot during the conference. And so we'll we'll dig into that. So we have our usual, actually kind of an unusual set of stuff, kind of a, lots of little groupings of things today, uh, starting with a couple news things, right?
1: Yeah, a couple quick bits of news. The first one is something we've kind of touched on before with respect to Python and performance, and that's PEP 684, a per interpreter gil. So this has been approved, it's, uh, slated for Python 3.12 in the fall. So for most of Python's life, you've been able to run multiple instances of the interpreter in a single process. But because of there being a fair amount of global state, there's the global interpreter lock, GIL, to its friends, (laughs) except I don't think it has any. So this PEP is, it doesn't really remove the GIL, but it draws boxes around it, meaning you should be able to get better parallelism, especially in conjunction with things like C-based extensions. So this is a step towards more performance performance. 3.11, 3.12 have both been very performance sort of conscious, and this will be another chunk in that, so this will be interesting. Yeah. Beyond the release, I'm interested to see where things like the NumPy and Pandas kind of folks uh, interact with it, right? Because when you get into some of these libraries that are very C extension-based, it it could be interesting what they're able to do with it.
0: Yeah, maybe that'll uh, marry with some of that stuff of the arrow, the data frames in, in memory.
1: Yes. Yeah, yeah. For like Pandas 2.0 using arrow and things like that. Yeah. So it, it'll give them more choices as to how they interact with Python for performance reasons rather than having to do a lot of that management themselves. It could simplify some of their code. Too. Yeah. So it'd be interesting.
0: Be a very interesting release this year, huh?
1: <laughs> yes, yeah. yeah there's going to be a lot in it. Uh, so a lot of it's underground, so it, it may just be like, oh, here's these tiny little things, and it's like, but the performance goes through the sky, so it'll be it'll be neat. It'll be you know, always looking forward to it. Yeah. Uh, then the second piece here is the AWS Lambda service is now supporting Python 3.10. So if you want to go write some serverless code, uh, you can now do that with the match statement, which you wouldn't have been able to do a few days ago.
0: Yeah. It takes them a little while to kind of catch up, but that's, that's good. We're not too far behind. Yep. I kind of want to do a little report on PyCon, PyCon US 2023 there in Salt Lake City. I drove to the conference from Colorado. I picked up Jim Anderson, who's I think been on the show once a long time ago. I'd like to get him back on the show, but he's also an author on the site. And uh, he lives in Fort Collins. And then we drove across Wyoming and, and it was so funny, he like, had prepared all this stuff. He's like, okay, I got like podcasts and I got audiobooks and so forth. And we just talked the entire way. <laughs> so that was actually like at the way home. We end up finally uh, diving into a little bit of that stuff. But I want to say it was fantastic meeting listeners and fans of the show. Thank you so much for coming up to us at the RealPython booth and saying hi to not only myself, but also other members of the team. and it just was really great. And thank you so much for sharing what you liked about the show and what you like about the site and asking me questions. It was really fun. And just to let you know, a lot of people were wondering where Mr. Trudeau was and uh, wanting to meet him. He was still in Canada. Yeah. (laughs) So I don't know. We'll see. I have to see if I can drag you out someday to a, to a PyCon, but someday uh, maybe on, yeah, maybe on the East coast, maybe it'll be easier. (laughs) So, but uh, yeah. Really nice feeling. Thank you so much again. We were in the back of the expo hall, but people found us and a lot of new people checked out the site and that was really great. And I let a lot of people know about that we do a a podcast. So if you're a new listener, it's great to have you. Thank you for listening. One thing that I was excited about that was a little different from last year is I got to see a lot of previous guests that were maybe unable to attend last year for whatever reason or were nervous about it but it was really great to connect with them again a lot of people that were in gosh the first two years of of doing the show uh savannah ostrowski uh sumina mike driscoll i got to see tanya allard got to see Russell keith mcgee we had talked about that recently uh wukush was there nina zakarenko and josh burnett who was a real great guest last year who came up and had pitched himself uh to come on the show. And I was going to talk a little bit about that here in a second, but, and I briefly saw a handful of other people, Al Swiger, Brett Cannon, and so lots of previous guests. It was really neat to see them and connect with them. And so one person that I talked to very, very recently is the director for the PSF, Deb Nicholson, and we were discussing kind of getting the word out for the PSF. And there's a lot of things happening with the PSF this year. There's a a security developer in residence that they're looking for. There's going to be a second developer in residence for Python, somebody working with wukush and uh, a lot more upcoming news and stuff that's happening. And uh, I offered her, please come on the show whenever you want to get that kind of news out. We can always carve out a little spot and maybe these type of episodes to have her come in and talk. And then uh, the other person I saw that, that was great was Jody Burchell, and got to hang out with her for a little bit. So that was nice. And we have plans for her to come back and do some more data science stuff. Michael Kennedy stopped by from Talk Python, and I actually got to sit and have lunch with him and fellow podcaster Sean Tibor, who does teaching Python. And I met a bunch of other potential guests kind of hooking up with them and talking about it. And I did a lot of work to wrangle future guests for the show. I'm going to be spending much of the next month plotting out and figuring out the summer and the fall of how to get them there. I wanted to do a lightning talk. It didn't get accepted, but the idea of it was something kind of akin to what I was just talking about. If you are interested in coming on the Real Python podcast, or maybe you're interested in going on another podcast, and you have a project, you have a story, you have a book, um, something that you want to get out in the world how can you pitch that successfully? What kind of things would work and what would be be things that people would be interested in and get our attention? So I sat in on an open space um, that Paul Everett from JetBrains kind of organized as a ask me anything with Brian Aachen and and Michael Kennedy. I was able to ask them this question and they answered pretty much the same things that I had thought about and was going to do on my lightning talk. So that worked out really well. And so one of the things I wanted to point out is you need to know like Number one, I get a lot of very much, I feel like automated stuff uh, that comes in my, you know, transom. And do you know the audience of this show? And this show is a very much educational show. Like that's my goal is to try, if not to teach people new concepts, at least make them aware of these concepts and where they can learn more about it. And probably my favorite thing is to give people resources so that they can put their hands on it and play with these things themselves. And so what you should pitch should be, you know, more of a topic or an idea as opposed to the person. And, you know, is there a learning aspect? You know, how can the audience learn a little bit more? So things that I love when somebody's pitching this stuff to me is, have you ever presented this before? Have you thought about it to the level that you have maybe, maybe did a meetup and presented it at there? Uh, Maybe that was recorded and you can share that talk with me. Uh, Conference talks or the, you know, the higher echelon of that, but it could be just as simple as something that you did at a meetup, some kind of presentation that you did. If that's not the case, maybe you've written an article or a blog post or something where you've thought about this idea and you want to share it again, geared toward teaching and exploring the language and stuff like that. Books are fantastic because they're just filled with that kind of idea and typically in this platform trying to teach. And I will mine those resources for questions and I send them in advance usually to try to get us really deeper into the topic and kind of learn about it. And then obviously the conversation can go lots of different ways. What tends not to work is really you know pitching the person, like literally sending me a resume and the person really not understanding, you know, that kind of connection. The I've had somebody recently send something, you know, where it's like, this person's a CEO of this company and they could talk about Python or DevOps or, you know, whatever. And it's like, those are so vast <laughs> and so general that it's not going to help me a lot. It's going to end up being like a real hard time for me to dig something out of it. So if there's something that you've Narrowed it down, it really helps and and makes it much more interesting, yeah it sounds like an oversimplification, but you
1: know you have to have
0: a topic <laughs> um, yeah. it's
1: um so i I've been on talk Python, yeah, and uh, primarily why I was going on talk Python was because uh Michael Kennedy and I had written a course for Talk Python. And, uh, of course, what we're trying to do is promo that, make people aware of it. But the course is an intro to Django, and you can't talk for an hour about an intro to Django without, right, say, right. Uh, unless you're teaching Django itself, right? So, yeah,
0: right. Walking through the steps of
1: setting up. <laughs> yeah, so, so nominally, you know, the reason I was there was self-promotion and, uh, you know, and, and even in, in Michael Kennedy's own promotion as well, because it's a course on his site. So what we ended up doing instead was like a collection of packages, right? So it was, hey, if you're a Django programmer, these are some packages that you might use and why that was. And that's something that listeners are going to have some interest in. And it was related to what we were promoing so it, it didn't come out of left field but yeah you you've got to have a topic right so yeah uh, as you may be the most fascinating person on the planet but uh you know n- none of us are uh george clooney right and it's not the, <laughs> and even with clooney you see it on you see on late night talk shows very seldom are they showing up to do anything but promo the movie well
0: okay well tell us about the movie like why were you interested whatever right so yeah you, you got to have a topic yeah and i think some people are nervous about you know, maybe coming on a show. And if they've done that kind of legwork we're talking about, for those who may be nervous, I do edit this show and I will do my best to make you shine and sound great. That's totally my goal. And I think a lot of people are sort of surprised with the results. They're like, okay, I thought this was going to (laughs) be horrible. And they're like, okay, I'm very happy with how this turned out. I, again, try to provide questions in advance and allow you to do some prep work I will share a preview if there's something that needs to be changed. And I think only once somebody has said something where it was like, oh, I talked about something that that isn't, you know, that's still under wraps for a while and I had to remove it. It was not a big deal. More often than not, the thing I'm wanting from my preview I send out is they send me more links and more things that I can attach and are copious show notes, which if you're not checking out, please take some time <laughs> and dig into those show notes because uh, I go out of my way to to try to include as many resources for you as possible. So, and you wanted to talk a little bit about PyCoders, which is kind of this format that we're, we talk about it. I, I mentioned at the end of it and if you're not familiar with it, tell people about PyCoders and how people could submit things for being included. Sure. So it's,
1: Yet another newsletter, because uh, they seem to be there 's dozens and dozens of them, of them yeah. out there, and even just in the, in the python space uh, and the content that uh, Mr. Bailey and I are talking about every couple of weeks is mostly ninety eight percent articles that are have been posted in there. There is a submission form we'll include a link to that speaking of show notes yep, but i would i'm probably rejecting i'd say fifteen to twenty percent of submissions. And uh, very similar to kind of what you're talking about of getting on the podcast, it's the article has to have some content. And lately, unfortunately, there's been a lot of obviously written by Chat GPT and very light content (laughs) in the article. And that I wonder about that (laughs) very quickly ends up in the bin. And some of it, too, is uh, there needs to be enough there. Uh, you know, y- y- you can't write four lines, even even as useful as it sometimes is of, hey, these four lines fixed my problem. That isn't typically what we want folks clicking through on. So you need a few hundred words by at bare minimum uh, in order to sort of be considered, unless it's a project. And we do have a section on projects. And if you uh, submit a project that uh, is interesting, we just add that to the project chunk at the bottom. But if you're looking for like a link through to an article or something like that, then, uh, you know, it, it's got to actually be an article. We generally avoid anything with an off wall. So if you have to be a member, most of our people, uh, most of the people clicking through are not interested. So we tend to p- bypass that as well. And if you're thinking of, for example, if you want more If you want to promo more a project, write a blog post on that project, then you're more likely to get an article on it than you are to see, you know, just stuck in the project at the bottom. But if you're going to do that, submit the article first, because if you end up in the projects and then the next week I get the article, I'm probably going to go, yeah, well I just covered this and it's going to look like a repeat, right? So understanding kind of who your audience is and what you're after is important. We do occasionally include general programming stuff, but a vast, vast majority of content is Python and Python-focused. So not that that other content isn't useful, but if you're trying to push something that isn't really Python-related, you're much less likely to get in the listing because
0: it's a Python news- newsletter. Yeah, and if you've been listening to the show, you really can get a good vibe of the kind of things that, that we're excited to have you include yeah. uh, and, and add. Awesome. Well, I just wanted to share that stuff. And again, thanks for anybody coming by at PyCon US. It was fantastic for you to reach out. And I hope to see you in my inbox. (laughs) Um, Or at the next conference. Or at the next conference. So, yeah. Great. So what's your uh, next topic here? Yeah, so I'm starting
1: out with a trifecta, which is just fun to say. Sure. So three different articles, they all have something in common, Uh, they're all resource lists. This kind of content is actually great, Uh, exposes me and other readers to libraries that you might not otherwise come across, Uh, but they don't have a lot of details, so I don't have a lot to say in the podcast about them, but uh, I figured we'd go over a couple of them and just highlight that they were there. The first one is Google's Assured Open Source Software List. If you haven't come across this before, Google publishes a list of packages that they've verified and that they use in their own supply chain, like in the cloud, etc. But even if you're not using their cloud, you can take advantage of this because you can look up and go, oh, well, they've validated that version. The list has libraries both for Java, my notes here say pause for heckling, (laughs) and of course, Python. The Python work has been done on Linux and Python 3.8. So kind of like that AWS comment you made a little bit, they're a little bit behind uh, because it takes time to validate all of this stuff. As of the recording, there are 574 Python packages on this list. And now to fill airtime, I will read them all in a slow voice so you can write them all down. The list starts with Abseil Py, a library from Google for building Python applications. Next is... And the last is zip (laughs) with two Ps, and it wouldn't surprise me if Mr. Bailey edited some of that out. In seriousness, I was able to find a couple libraries I regularly use that aren't on the list, but only a couple. Pretty much everything I could name off the top of my head was there. So interesting little thing to see. The next article here in my collection of collections is called Groovy Datasets for Test Databases, and it's by Esther Schindler. If you've ever needed some data to give your program a little push while testing, this is the article for you. A lot of the content here was gathered from uh, Jeremy Singer Vine's data is plural newsletter, speaking of newsletters. And it includes stuff like info gathered from the Star Trek API, FIFA World Cup, uh, World Music and more. So this kind of data is fun to play with, uh, but you can also use it to help exercise your code Instead of working with, say, a few lines of test data, you can actually deal with something that's representative of, you know, real content. Yeah. And then the last article is Will Vincent's top 10 Django third-party packages. The title more or less says it all. Includes some of the common stuff like the Django REST framework and the debug toolbar, as well as some less common libraries like Django Storages and Django Environ. Although the article says top ten, there's also a bit at the bottom where he adds another dozen. And then there's another dozen that are <laughs> Python libraries, which are commonly used when coding with Django. So even if you're not a Django person, there's a bunch of interesting content in here. So Sounds like a good collection. Yeah. So I've got a new item on my bucket list. Uh, I want one of my open source libraries on Google's list. Uh, I'll have to come up with a name that shows up before Absell uh Pi alphabetically so that I'm first. But uh and, and
0: underscore something. Something. Yeah.
1: It'll have to <laughs> the, I don't know what AAA is gonna do, but it's gonna be my
0: Python package on Google's list. We'll get there. Right. Yeah, Google was represented very well at, at PyCon. A lot going on with packaging on their side also and assuring trust of packaging. So I think it's going to be an interesting year. We talked a lot about last year, paying attention to your, your dependencies. And um, I, I think there's going to be lots of resources coming up. So that seems like a nice one there too. This week, I want to shine a spotlight on another RealPython video course. It fits in nicely with all the news and stories we had this week about the Python Packaging Index, PyPI. It's titled Publishing Python Packages to PyPI. The course is based on an article by Gerarna Hjela, and my co-host, Christopher Trudeau, is the instructor. And he's going to take you through why packages and virtual environments exist, how to use build systems, what are the contents of the PyProject Toml file, how to use the build and twine tools, and what the poetry and flit tools offer. And most importantly, you'll learn all about the structures of a package and how to upload your own to the PyPI server. I think it's a valuable investment of your time to learn how to share your work using the standard tools within the Python community. And like all the video courses on RealPython, the course is broken into easily consumable sections. Plus, you get additional resources and code examples for the techniques shown. All of our course lessons have a transcript, including closed captions. Check out the video course. You can find a link in the show notes, or you can find it using the enhanced search tool on realpython.com. So my next one is an announcement plus a project. The announcement of the project is called faulty depths, faulty spelled F-A-W-L-T-Y. You might get the joke right away. It's the Monty Python adjacent faulty towers sitcom that John Cleese was on. And the depths part of it is it's a dependency checker for Python to find undeclared and or unused third-party dependencies in your projects. The article was on the TWEAG blog. I don't know how to pronounce that. Twig. Anyway, um, it's got four people listed on it. John Herland, Nor. El Maria Norps, and Vince Reuter. And the first line of the article is, it is a truth universally acknowledged that the Python packaging ecosystem is in need of a good dependency checker. The idea of the declarations in your projects can go wrong in kind of two directions. You declare too little or you de- declare too much. And you might think to yourself, well, my linter should be the solution here, right? The, the A linter is gonna look for references in your code and make sure there's like an import statement or potentially the reverse if something is imported but never actually implemented in your code. And this is actually kind of taking almost like a layer, if you will, if you think of like uh, the, the layers of like networking, things like that. It's more on the overall project and the reproducibility of your project as a whole. Try to avoid the dreaded hey, it works on my machine kind of thing, where the dependencies can be defined. You might be familiar with the idea of a requirements.txt file that somebody can use to pip install the things that you need in this project to be able to run it properly. So it's more of that kind of thing. A PyProjectTOML file, setuppy or setupcfg, uh, these are all things that faulty depths will look at to determine what's been defined or declared as dependencies in there and what's missing or what's included and isn't being used and and so forth. So hopefully you can kind of see how it's kind of like a layer above what like a linter would do. It's more looking at those types of files and that kind of relationship with the overall project. I tried it out with a project I'm going to talk about in a little bit and I found two legitimate missing dependencies and for this case, they were installed, actually, by me, but I had to do install them after the fact because of like an error that appeared. And so when I ran this on it, it popped up and said, hey, there's two packages that are required by this project, but they're not there. So I just went down what probably is a familiar path for a lot of people working with PIP. If not, we got a lot of resources on RealPython that can help you out with doing this, but you can freeze a set of requirements. So even though i've installed this project by a third party person it needed these files they were not included in something like a requirements file for me to rebuild this exactly how they had done it and so by you know running that pip command freeze and sending it into a requirements.txt file i had solved the issue and the article is a bit of an announcement as a few cases and a, a few examples and and kind of really sort of saying you know what this thing does and how it will do it and some you know graphical examples of it and a few of the commands but i really liked the readme on github it is way more detailed dives much much further into what this could do i think this might be another useful tool and have you used anything like this Chris? No,
1: I, most of the time I'm dealing with my own stuff, so I'm I'm already there. I think it's more valuable when, like you were saying, when you're trying to spelunk through somebody else's code. And I fortunately haven't had to do that in Python. Okay, um, I could could have used this for other languages in other in in the past with my career, where you're trying to figure out what were they
0: doing and why. <laughs> yeah, does it make sense? Is that make sense that it's sort of different than what a linter is doing? Um, in this sense. It, yeah, they serve different purposes.
1: I guess it's it's a it's a subset of what linters do, and not all linters do it well. So
0: right, yeah, yeah it seems very very specific uh, toward this one goal. And linter may have that as a feature, you know, looking at import statements and stuff like that. Whereas this is really trying to make sure that all your dependencies are, are there and and so forth. And one of the claims is you know it can help reduce the size of repos and things like that. Of you not adding things to a project that don't need or never touched or used and so forth. Programs change as people go, and very often we might have things saved in requirements files or done in earlier configurations and then they never got removed, so.
1: Yeah, dead code, dead imports, that kind of stuff, yeah.
0: Yeah, it's an it's a interesting project, faulty depths. So you have another collection
1: <laughs> Yep. here. It's, uh, it's, it's my meta week. Yeah, yeah. This is two more articles, uh, also interrelated. These are the first two real posts on the PyPI blog. And I'm saying real because I'm I'm not counting their Hello World entry. So the most recent is called PyPI introduces trusted publishers and was posted by Dustin Ingram. Uh, and it essentially has to do with the addition of new security features at PyPI. What they're calling trusted publishers is OpenID Connect, And OpenID Connect is a layer that sits on top of Auth 2.0. So we're just flying with the buzzwords here. Yeah. Uh, So this essentially is a way of entering credentials and allowing you to get PyPy to trust a GitHub repo and a workflow rather than, say, putting in your username and password for IPI. So it essentially is another way of authenticating for the publication package. And tokens go back and forth instead of you transmitting credentials. And because this is tied to a repo, it means you can do things like manage your code security through the repo security. So now I don't, if uh, if Mr. Bailey and I are doing some code together, as long as he's got authorization to GitHub to push to this project, I don't have to worry whether or not he's got credentials on PyPI at all because it all links together. And the intent is that this is a first step towards a bunch of new security features. So there's more in this space that's coming. The other piece, which is smells like it might even be connected. uh, They're not explicit about it, though, is a blog post from from E Durbin. And it's called Introducing PyPI Organizations. This is a mechanism for creating accounts around organizations rather than individuals. It allows for self-managing teams, Community projects will be able to get this feature for free, while corporate projects require a small fee, and the revenue is going to go back to adding better PyPI support. So like the security stuff, this is sort of a a base ground for more interesting future features. Cool. And while I'm on the topic of PyPI, I've got a, a three to go with my two here. A quick call out to a project that I've come across that was posted in PyCoders called PyPI diff. It's a bot that regularly looks at PyPI's catalog and stores a diff from one day to the next in the repo. So you don't even have to run the bot yourself. You can just go check out their different repos and programmatically you can figure out what has happened for package releases. Hmm. So if you're trying to monitor whether or not there's been a patch for something that's, say, in your chain, uh, looking at these repos would be a way of scripting that. So this is a neat little mechanism.
0: Yeah, we kind of dug into looking at packages uh, a couple weeks back. This might add on top of that, the idea of like activity and, you know, is this thing currently still active and being developed on. That might be another resource there.
1: Yeah, I would, uh, you know, my need for it would generally be with hatching packages right you don't want to get too stale so yeah uh, ha- i'd love I, one of those things that's always been on my mind to build and I've just never got around to it is i'd love to be able to sign up for this is my list of 10 packages associated with this project and then somebody email me when you know 1.10.11 becomes 1.10.12 so I can go and see if I want to use that or get on top of it right and this is this data would be the first step to that it just needs the extra please email me
0: part afterwards so if you're out there pi diff and you're listening, Email me, okay. So that gets us into projects this week. Uh, speaking of things we cover, and this one is a lot of fun. You shared it kind of last minute with me, and I was like, "Oh, this looks really cool." Um, I'm old, <laughs> uh, <laughs> and uh, I'm a fan of uh, pixel art. I'm allowed art. to laugh because I'm also old. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'm a big fan of pixel art, and there's a, a paint program that was developed by Electronic Arts back in 1985 and so you can can kind of imagine the types of computers that that it ran on but Commodore had a popular machine at the time called the Amiga and this paint program also was available on the Gem platform which was Atari's ST computers and that's where I'd seen it before and it's called Deluxe Paint just seeing the picture of the Tutankhamun's death mask on there. I just totally like brought back memories. Like, oh my gosh, I remember that image. And there's a few others that were used very often in deluxe paint. But this individual created a project. His name's Mark Rialli. And he is faithfully created a reproduction of it. The key word he has in there is the first line a usable pixel art program (laughs) written in Python. And its main tool, that's using kind of under the hood is Pygame, and then it also uses numpy those are my things i needed to add (laughs) by the way and it did warn me when i ran it the first time um it's like hey these things need to be installed too so it wasn't like i was like okay well this gives me a chance to run my other thing i was talking about earlier anyway pixel art's really popular right now and that kind of retro look of many games like maybe you've heard of dead cells or vampire survivors or you know any number of games that is up on steam right now it how do you create those kind of pixel perfect little individuals most modern tools are kind of geared toward f- photography or vector graphics or other kinds of things and this is way down in the raster individual pixel kind of thing and it has all these kind of funky interesting tools he has a really nice tour of the program he doesn't speak a word he just kind of is touring through it and showing you all the sort of features uh, on a youtube video which i'll include a link to mark feels that the old tools may be a better solution than some of the more modern tools that are overly complicated or crude in design but he's recreated the menus you know the file format and i i got suggested a, a thing on youtube as i was looking at it of this gentleman who's a running an Amiga emulator to basically run the original version of Deluxe Paint on it. And he was like, well, can I import a file, move it across and feature-wise and so forth? And he was super impressed with it. And he's like, okay, this foregoes me needing to run this emulator. I can just run this from a command line or potentially you could package it up because he did package up it as an .exe file to run Windows if you want. But I think you could probably uh, package it up yourself. I I cloned the repo, set up a virtual environment, and installed those two additional requirements, and it was really neat. And I played around with it for about half an hour, and I sent some screenshots to a friend of mine who is really into art back in the late 80s and 90s, and his response was, no way, which, of course, I had to say, way. He's got a a coffee or K-O-Fi donation page, and he's looking for... People, if you're interested in helping out, um, I don't know if I mentioned even the name yet, but it's called Pied Painter. So P-Y-D is the Pied and then Painter. And if you're interested in helping out on the project, he's looking for help on GitHub there. I'll include that link. He also has a Facebook group where people were talking about the program also. So uh, neat project. I was impressed with just how complete as a paint program it was. And definitely brought me back to the late '80s. <laughs> so the, the sequel, there were
1: actually four or five of them, but Deluxe Paint Two, okay, ended up on DOS, and so was available along all the PCs and stuff. And if I remember correctly, the actual executable was DPaint, um, and so a lot of people referred to it as DPaint. So hence Pi, yeah, yeah, hence, hence why Pi DPaint, or
0: yeah, so yeah, yeah. Yeah, but his his logo is definitely pied, like a pied piper. Yes. yeah, <laughs> which is kind of, you know, makes me think of uh, Silicon Valley. All right, what do you? What's your project?
1: So I've got a quick one this week. This is called T R Rex. Although note that the GitHub repo is called T Rex with a single R, so it's a little confusing. And this is by Daniel Masejo. The core of this is quite simple. It's a regex utility where you give it a bunch of words and it builds a regex-like union uh, that can find each of those words. The function returns an actual Python regex pattern object. So once you've constructed it, you can use it just like a regular regex. The advantage here is he's doing some tricky efficiency stuff underneath. And so you're getting 300 times performance boost than, say, naively sticking a regex together in a union. And he's taken some ideas from some similar other regex tools and essentially stuck them in an easy-to-use Python-only library with no dependencies. So this really has one particular use, but it does it really, really well, uh, and it's screaming fast. So if you're finding that you are using regexes to search for multiple words and multiple occurrences of those words, then this library will make your code way easier to understand and a lot faster and your head will hurt less. So uh, <laughs> go check out
0: uh, uh The one thing, I haven't delved really deep on chat GPT and, and these other kinds of things, but I think that might be one of the most useful things I've seen as a use for it is to help it write regex <laughs> for you um, as a prompt.
1: Well, you you know the old thing, right? Like if if you have you have a problem, right. And you use regex to solve it. Now you have two problems. <laughs> Something tells me adding Chat GPT is Not, adding at least there's an exponent a, in that a,
0: problem somewhere. <laughs> I don't
1: think it goes to three. Yeah. I think it goes to some other. Th- there might be a ten to the power of in that joke now. So
0: what string are you worth searching for, Dave? Yes, exactly, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, thanks for bringing all these articles and projects this week, Christopher. Okay. Uh, pleasure to do it. And uh, like I said, uh, go submit.
1: Always uh, happy to see new stuff coming in.
0: Yep. We'll include links in the show notes for, for all of that. And we'll see you all soon. Thanks. I want to thank Christopher Trudeau for coming on the show again this week. And I want to thank you for listening to the Real Python podcast. Make sure that you click that follow button in your podcast player. And if you see a subscribe button somewhere, remember that the RealPython podcast is free. If you like the show, please leave us a review. You can find show notes with links to all the topics we spoke about inside your podcast player or at realpython.com podcast. And while you're there, you can leave us a question or a topic idea. I've been your host, Christopher Bailey, and I look forward to talking to you soon.